In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, that's Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Praise God. So if you all were to come over for dinner at me and Karen's house, a lot of y'all have been over for dinner at our house. And um, we said, dinner's ready. And we brought you into the bathroom. And there was a table set in the bathroom with chairs around it. And we said, just wait right here. We're going to go get the appetizers. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Yeah. You'd say, this is really weird. This is inappropriate, even. There's actually an episode of Seinfeld Anybody a Seinfeld fan remember the episode of Seinfeld where Kramer decides he loves the shower so much that he just wants to spend all of his time in there, so he, he inserts a garbage disposal in his bath, bathtub drain so that he can make meals in the shower, and you know people find out that he's made them meals. Seriously, if, if my son, and my son tends to, to ask things like this, um, hey, Dad, can I just, can I just uh, do my homework in the bathroom? And he just, sometimes in a, in a house, you just want to get away, I say, no, and it's not like it's against the rules. It's just, it's not appropriate. Like, go in the, I don't know, go in the backyard or something and do your homework. Don't, don't go in the bathroom. It's, it's not fitting. It's not necessarily like outlawed. There aren't a list of rooms, a, a list of rules in our house. You walk in, it says, no eating in the bathroom, no homework in the bathroom. It's just not what that room's for. It's weird. It's not fitting. And this idea of what's fitting versus what's not fitting actually comes up in scripture when worship services are described. Psalm 147 opens in verse 1 saying, praise the Lord because it's fitting to do so. Actually, the old, if you ever read the old versions like the King James, um, it says, it is comely. It's fitting. It's even beautiful to do this. I bring all this up because we are in a series on gathered worship. 
in a year and a half, over, over the course of a year and a half, we've had to rethink what we do together when we come together for worship. We've had to worship on a screen for a while and try to gather where we can as we can. And sometimes the time has had to be cut short. We have to make decisions like, what are the most important things that we do? And now in the last few months, we're in a new space and it's kind of kindled that question again. How do we think about what we do in worship services? And we're looking at gathered worship in scripture for a few months here on our Sunday morning services. Now, in the New Testament, there are some direct commands about worship, like things you should be doing, and we're going to get there. But we're, we, this is kind of like the, the third sermon getting us into this series, so it's kind of like the end of the intro of this series. We're not getting into like uh, the rules about worship or places where the Apostle Paul, for example, says you really need to worship this way. More than that, there's a mood about worship. It's not so much about the rules, it's about what's fitting, what fits. We're setting the table by sharing just the understanding that it feels like everyone had in the scriptures when they come to worship. And if there is one phrase I can give you that describes the sense of what's happening when we come into worship, it's this. On earth as in heaven. God's people gathering in worship are enacting something on earth that's going on in heaven. We're actually imitating and even entering the worship that's already going on in heaven. And we've actually looked at some passages that describe this in different ways the last couple weeks. If you weren't with us, I just wanted to put a few verses on the screen that we haven't looked at yet, just to give you more and more of a sense as we go along. There's a lot of this in scripture. For example, Psalm 150, which is the last Psalm we get. This is 150 of them. And this is not an accident that this is the last one. Verse one, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Verse 1 is a description of worship in heaven. Actually, even the word sanctuary, we are to understand the heavenly sanctuaries, the places of worship that any sacred space in this world is just patterned after. But that's the real thing. That's the first thing. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Worship in heaven coming together with worship on earth. Everything that has breath, every created thing, also join in praise. On earth, it ends. Our whole Psalter ends. Let's all worship on earth just as they're doing in heaven. This isn't a small theme. This is a massive theme. And here's just one more from the book of Hebrews, which we were in last week. And we'll, we'll, we'll jump back into Hebrews from time to time because it it's a book a lot that has a lot to do with our gathered worship. This is speaking about Christ who serves as a high priest. You know, in the temple, in the tabernacle, there was a high priest that offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Of course, Christ is our great and final high priest who sacrificed his very self. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews has to say. Christ has now entered not into holy places made with hands, like tabernacles and temples and churches on Cumberland Street, but into heaven itself, uh, excuse me, all those holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, what's the true thing? Heaven, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. All these scenes of heaven and earth coming together. And today we're gonna look at maybe, maybe the most famous passage in scripture about 
a worship service on earth where it just suddenly turns into a scene of the worship in heaven. It's very mysterious, but gorgeously beautiful. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. I'm just going to give you three points that I'm going to hit fairly briefly. I'm going to talk about where Isaiah is in this passage. Secondly, what Isaiah experiences. And third, how Isaiah responds. Just the where, what, and how of this worship scene. So first of all, verse 1 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, it tells you the when right away, so I won't get into that. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was serving as a prophet. We read about it in 2 Kings, uh, the history of it. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah, it seems like he just went into the temple of Solomon, the temple in Jerusalem, where Jews made pilgrimage to worship at least three times a year. And if you lived in Jerusalem, Jerusalem surely you went there a lot more often than that. But he's in the temple, and it seems like because he has this vision of the Lord in his glory, he's in the holiest place within the temple. That's the point of verse 1. I saw the Lord in the temple. Um, if you're not familiar with some of just the, the, the architecture of the holy spaces in the Old Testament, again, we looked at this a little bit two weeks ago, but here's a, just a really brief scene. This is the wilderness tabernacle when Israel only had a tent to meet into worship. Uh, we read about its construction at the end of the book of Exodus. And so you see there's this outer area, like there's this inner building, that was the tent itself, but then there was a fenced uh, curtain, a curtain that fenced the outside. So there's this outer area where there's an altar, a laver that's really a brass basin for, for um, ritual cleansings on the way into the tent. And then you have this holy place where there is part of the liturgy happened and the priests would minister, but then there was this holiest place, the Holy of Holies, which is the place where the high priest could only go once a year because that's where the glory of God came to dwell in its fullness. It seems like Isaiah is like in the holiest place, beholding God. And I'll just go on to the next slide. This is, this is fast-forwarding um, hundreds of years to the... Um, the building of the temple after Israel had rest from war and David had died and his son Solomon was on the throne and he constructed the temple. You can see it's similar architecture, right? It's a building now, not a tent, but there's the outer area and then there's the inner area, which is like the temple proper, but then this space in this map is called the oracle. That is to say, the approaching God in his fullness, which again, you just didn't do unless you were that one figure once a year who went in to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people in the holiest place. So there's this idea of graded entry into God's presence in the sacred spaces of the Old Testament. And this is where Isaiah is. But once he's there, it seems like this on-earth worship space just becomes a scene of heavenly worship. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like Isaiah just went into the temple, because he's a prophet now, like it's just any other day, and just for a moment, on this day, he gets a vision of what's really going on in heaven all the time here on earth. He gets that vision here on earth. So we can bring that down, that slide. Here's the point, folks. Where he is. I think if it were you and me, 
if from the time we were small children, we were being brought by, let's say, good Jewish pilgrims who came as often as they were ideally supposed to, when they could, to the temple, even the glory of Solomon's temple could get a little pedestrian after a while. Okay, I get how this works. There's some sacrifices going on. I see how those minister, you know, there's different people ministering here. But you can forget that this is supposed to be a place where you encounter the living God. Verse 2, Isaiah sees the Lord. It says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, six wings, two are flying, two are covering uh, the eyes. I don't know, I actually, it's probably good if you hear me say more often, I don't know why two wings are covering their feet. There's so many different opinions there about what's going on in the scene. But two of the wings are covering the angel's eyes. And remember, angels are creatures without sin. And these sinless angelic creatures are even saying, the holiness is so great that we can't look. Do you know that, what that, that's what we're entering into, in a sense, when we come to worship? Do you know that? We're in a place that's supposed to be imitating that place. So what's fitting? What's comely? What's beautiful? What's appropriate for us to do if we're entering into that environment? You know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to give you all a list of rules at the door, or right outside the door of this room, of like what you have to do when you have to enter. I'm not going to tell you what you have to wear, although sometimes my son asks things like, so like, it's church, should I wear like my good Crocs? I'm like, sure. We actually probably need to think through that. We should probably have a little bit more of an idea of what's fitting when we come to worship. We're catching up to this idea. I think for my family, um, we had an understanding earlier when both Karen and I came to faith that there's a dead kind of formality that we don't want. But then early in my adult life, I started to realize more and more, I'm not even considering what's fitting when I come in to worship the God who is holy, holy, holy. Let me just ask you this. Do you ever even anticipate that that's what you have when you come here? That that's what could happen when you come here? that we could get a sense of God's glory when we gather together, and that God actually invites us to expect that we'll learn and even experience something of who he is in a gathered assembly that would be transformative for us. Do we anticipate our gathering even to the least extent as much as we anticipate, say, a concert? Or, or even getting ready for work in the morning? Like, what's going to happen? I don't even think about what's going to happen sometimes before I'm up here. That's just me saying, I'm one of you. I'm coming to terms with this. But this kind of space where this kind of thing is expected is where we are, coming to encounter the God who's holy, holy, holy. That's where he is. Okay. So what does he experience? You've already seen some of it. He sees these angels. I mean, every sense is engaged. Every sense is engaged. Sight in verses 1 through 3. He saw. That's the first verb that we get from Isaiah. But there's also these sounds, this singing. 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's, in verse 4, there's this other sound that seems to be the voice of the Lord himself that is like rumbling the whole room. So like, there's like the sense of touch that's engaged, but it's also still hearing. It seems like there's smell engaged because there's smoke in this place and, and sight again. All the senses are engaged. I think the main point is all senses are directed towards the one who is on the throne. There is never for a moment any doubt about who the service is about. It's about the one throne. And I have to ask myself sometimes, is it always perfectly clear who the focus is on in our worship services. Is that always abundantly clear when we're singing, when we're praying, when preaching is happening in communion? I gotta tell you, I'm self-conscious here sometimes. You serve. Let's get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the one, but that's... The, the one last thing I wanna focus on in what Isaiah experienced, an accent here on this song in verse three. Holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. I read that line. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I want to say, really? The whole earth is full of his glory? I think the scriptures would say again and again, yes. Even in Philadelphia, even given what you saw this week. I actually, uh, I don't know if you remember this, Chris. Chris uh, Byers, I don't know where, Chris, I don't know if you remember this, but we were going through a membership class, a New to Liberty class, um, and we were looking at this passage on the topic of worship, and Chris was sharing that he works in North Philadelphia at a hospital, which is already a broken place, and in a hospital in North Philadelphia, not all of North Philadelphia, but pockets of it, you know, we, we know what some of the negative aspects and, and challenges of life are in much of North Philadelphia. But in a hospital in North Philadelphia, you're not only in North Philly, but you're with a lot of the residents of North Philly on their worst day, in a tough place on people's worst day. And he said, I need to remember I don't know if you remember this, Chris, but you said, I really need to remember this week that the earth is actually filled with God's glory. And the fact is, it really is, but our senses have been dulled and our sins have tarnished that glory. There's a great line. I know I'm not reading it for the first time. Hannah quoted C.S. Lewis. I'm going to quote him a second time. From the weight of glory, he talks about the glory that is everywhere and he talks about it particularly in relation to human beings who are the very image of God we read in the scriptures, the image of God. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one, may one day be a creature which if you saw it now in full restored glory, you might even be tempted to worship. Or... If they keep going as the way they are, they might be such a horror and corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. 
immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Here's what this means. Something about what happens here when we look at God's word in the midst of his people and sing his praises, sometimes even using the very, the very words the angels are singing in this verse. The call is for us to be reminded of God's glory in such a way that will transform the way we behold the world when we leave these doors. Let me say that again. When we gather for worship, the calling is to behold God's glory in such a way that we will actually see his glory everywhere. Everywhere. Because it's there. The mark of the creator is in every molecule of his creation. Most of all, in the human, human beings that we snub, and work with, joke with, and exploit. This is what Isaiah experiences. He's in this normal temple that he probably goes to most days. It's become pedestrian to him, not today. Today it was a day where heaven on earth was realized. That's the second point. Thirdly and finally, so how does he respond? Let me read again verses 5 through 8. He sees all this. What, it's the only way he can respond. Verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So here's what we see. The only appropriate human reaction here is in verse 5. Isaiah says, I'm lost. It, beholding God in his full glory, which we can't even imagine that that's what happens here, because if, he if he had beheld God in all of his glory, he would have been done for. It's like coming too close to the sun. You can't stand. You can't see any longer. Not just because of the intensity of the glory, but also of God's holiness. So here's a question for you and me, for our worship services. Is it characteristic that we say as we enter, and even as we leave, I have no place here by right. It's actually, there's some incongruity here. It doesn't, that actually doesn't fit me being in his presence. That's actually not fitting. The only just thing for me to happen to me is to be thrown out of here and have the doors locked behind me. Actually, that isn't how we tend to react to worship services. I'll tell you how I react. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll confess first. When I go into other services, I am not there as one who is unworthy but welcome, and we're going to get to how the welcome ha happens. But I come in as a judge. I do. I judge the singing. Um, I judge the preaching. I judge the prayers. I judge the welcome. And if it is all amazing in my judgment, then I judge myself because our church is just terrible. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm a judge all the time for better or worse, judging others or judging myself. And it's just, it's just the, the most incredible mess. It's missed 
every, it somehow has missed absolutely everything. Because again, my eyes have left the one on the throne. And it's not become a worship service, it's become a theater that I might as well have paid on the way in for my entertainment. There's a guy named Stephen Muse who wrote a really helpful book for me. He tells the story of one time meeting with a woman who was kind of like a spiritual mother to him. She was a counselor, and he said he was really getting a sense of his own unworthiness. He was in a better place than I usually am, really feeling unworthy before a holy God, and he said, listen, um, I just need you to tell me. I feel like I know the right answers. I just need to hear it from somebody else. What, what is required for me to do then? If I really get a sense of my own unworthiness when I come before God, what's required of me, not just to get into heaven, but to enter into a worship service? I mean, there must be something I can do to make it fitting that I'm there. She says there is. You know what it is? Make yourself as low as dust that just barely blows in under the doors of heaven as they close. But, and get this, once you arrive, you find out that the seat of honor has been reserved for you at the table of the king. That's everything. It's so incredibly not fitting. It's so incredibly not fitting that we're here. It's so right to recognize that. And to the extent that you see holy, 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 you will necessarily, not in a shameful way, but in a, a way that reflects reality, realize that I am not, not, not holy, and yet a privileged place of a royal son or daughter has been set for you at the table of the king and your presence is awaited. That's what we come to. How does it happen? Let me end like this. In this passage, how does woe is me Isaiah become one that fits the space? In a word, there's this purging that has to happen. Did you see it? The angel takes a coal from a fire and says, you are a man of unclean lips. I agree with you, Isaiah. You are not worthy to be here. And there's a purging. This coal touches his mouth. What is this? I think there's a few things going on here. First of all, God's presence is described in a lot of places in Scripture as a fire, you know? Last week we saw in Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. Fire gives light. Fire gives warmth. Fire, like that light and warmth preserve life, and it's, it's welcoming. But if you get too close, it could and will consume you. So it's also dangerous, right? There's this purging sense that to be near God, it's beautiful, but it's also you can't come near without a sometimes painful change that is wrought in your life. To come near him is to become like him, and that is not a comfortable process, but it's a beautiful one. It's a useful one. It's a refining one, just like fire refines a material and gets rid of the impurities. That's part of what we should expect in worship. If you're comfortable in here every time, the leaders of this church are doing something dreadful to you. But if it feels sufficient atonement has been Made. That's the line in verse 7. The angel comes, purges, and says, your sins are atoned for. 
but only Jesus atones fully and finally. Jesus' it is finished on the cross means that righteousness, a declaration of righteousness, has happened to us. We're made fit through his finished work on the cross, even though we are not fit in of ourselves. So then he gets sent. The scene ends not just with a simple departure, but with a commissioning. Isn't it crazy? This guy who's like, my mouth's unclean, gets purged, is made fit, and then the Lord from the throne says, now we need somebody to go out into the world and tell them about my holiness. And the one who just said, I have unclean lips, now rushes forward and says, I'd like to be the one, please, who opens my mouth and goes for you. That's how it works. Um, In our worship services, if you come in as one who feels unworthy, do you get enough of a sense that Christ has forgiven all your sins, no matter what you did yesterday or a year ago or a decade ago, that because of your forgiveness in Christ and your unity with Christ by faith, he could use even you in this broken world? Do you get the sense coming into this worship service that you could be sent out not because you're great, but because he is? And he uses not great people to accomplish his work. That's there too. And I I just want to say to those of you who are here and feel like you're not worthy to share of his grace or you don't know the words, uh, there was this, this illustration that a guy named Jared Ayers, who was a pastor in our network a long time ago, uh, gave years ago, and it stayed with me. Um, you know uh, TED Talks? It's, it's on the app or the website or whatever. Um, there are these talks where people give fascinating conversations about technology or design or entertainment or education or whatnot. And there's this three-word phrase that at least they used to use to describe their work. It was ideas worth sharing. That's all it is. It's a collection of videos and lectures that are worth sharing to the world about every topic you can imagine. And I I just wonder if you think about what we're doing here, you hear about the fact that the whole earth is full of God's glory. The whole earth, that is to say, is a kind of temple that's gone terribly wrong and broken down, has been defiled. But that every person in this world has a mark of a creator. That every person of unclean lips can be remade in Christ to be an instrument of the king put to a holy usage. And it's out of sheer grace having nothing to do with how awesome you are. And I wonder if there's anything there right now that God has for you to share with a specific person. So before we come to the table, I just want to take a moment of silence and ask, Is there anybody that comes to mind for you right now that God would send you out of this place to bless, not curse, to give an encouraging, to forgive, to love, to beautify, to remind of their worth? Let's just take a moment before we come to the table and ask God, would you send even us to be your blessing to that person?